0: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To
3: contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.
4: Good morning. It's Monday, August the 19th, 2019. Orla Carmody in today for Michael Reed on a morning when the Northeast is recovering from the fla in Droghada, a huge success. And later in the program, we'll be joined by Droghada Mayor Paul Bell, who will reflect on what it means to the town and indeed the whole region. Also coming up in the programme, the latest on Brexit, LGBT awareness and training for HSE staff, the investigation into the insurance industry and confusion around eligibility for places on school buses. But first, talks between meat processors and farmers aimed at defusing the beef price crisis are to resume later today. The grassroots beef plan movement has organised pickets of factories over the summer, arguing that prices paid by factories for cattle are too low to support the sector. The minister for agriculture, Michael Cree, did not attend the earlier rounds of the talks. Uh, we'll find out whether he will in fact be attending later but with us now to set the scene for what might be achieved at today's talks is Amy Ford of the Irish Farmers Journal. Good morning Amy.
5: Good morning Orla.
4: Now there's obviously lots of layers to this particularly around pricing structures and transparency. What are the most contentious issues do you believe?
5: Well Orla I suppose um, farm organisations and um industry Ireland and department representatives are back around the table from today as you said this morning after last week's 12-hour marathon talks uh, in back west and I suppose the key issue for farmers and you said it there in your intro is, uh, is price basically and um, the price farmers are paid for their cattle in the factory and um, they're not happy with it it's, uh, it's not viable and it's not sustainable into the future and they want a fair price for their cattle um, last week it was well agreed and um, the uh, meat factories committed to review the, the pricing we've grid so that's how cattle are graded and how a price has worked out so there's going to be a review of that there's to be more details that are to emerge possibly today or later this week. Um another thing Board B has agreed to produce
4: Just before we come to that, yeah. if you don't mind, Amy, who will actually be attending the meetings this evening and what time are they starting and, and what is the kind of the outline going to be?
5: Yeah, so you have um the major farm organizations, so obviously the beef Club movement who kicked off the protests, the IFA, the ICMSA, that they're the dairy representative, dairy farmer representative the Irish Cattle and Sheep Association, uh Irish Natura and Hill Farmer Association, and Firma and probably Icos as well. The body representing
4: So um, all the stakeholders uh, will be there.
5: Yes, yeah, they will, yeah, they'll all be there along with representatives from Meat um, Industry Ireland. Who represent the factories and representatives from the Department of Agriculture as well.
4: Now, obviously, um, things um, came to a, a sort of a stalling after those twelve-hour marathon sessions, as you said last week. What do you think will change this evening? What what can move things along today, or can anything move things
0: along?
5: Yeah, I suppose last week. Look, um, things wouldn't be won't change overnight. While farmers want things to change overnight. Uh, they got two things last week that if a farmer requests a written contract uh, on a price he's quoted to sell, or he or she is quoted to sell his cattle for, and um, weighing of cattle on pre uh in factories, we'll say. It's hard to know really where, where they can go from here. They're looking for a potential price index, um, which would look at beef, w- which would look at um, the market returns for beef out there and uh, give it a beef price, we'll say. So it could be like like the Ornua uh, purchase price index for dairy products so that gives um, an equivalent milk price for milk products we say are uh, looking at markets uh, Some
4: sort of benchmarking so that at least there's more transparency around why uh, animals are priced in a particular way
5: Yeah something along those lines basically um, there, a lot was talked a lot was said at the last meeting and I'm sure today's meeting will go on just as long potentially um, hopefully not for everyone attending but um there's still a load of key issues there to be thrashed out between the farm organisations and the factories it'll be interesting to see how it pans out
4: Now you mentioned there are written contracts it seems unusual that still in this day and age there are verbal contracts still in existence because we all know verbal contracts aren't worth the paper they're not written on
5: Yeah so in this case um, this is where say you or me ring up the factory today and I have seven bulls to be killed and I want them um, to sell them into the factory on Thursday this week we'll say and if I'm given a quote over the phone by a factory agent um, that quote should stand basically but if I turn up to the factory on Thursday and I don't get the price I'm quoted then there's an issue so in this case um, the factories have agreed that each individual factory themselves will look at how this would play out so that if I do call over the phone that I do get um, a, a written contract and um, if I request it obviously And
4: it's so easy I'm- to do that nowadays I mean there's no excuse it's a very simple forwarding of a an, an email or even an app and, and farmers are so au fait with all of this nowadays you know they could easily get something online very quickly couldn't they?
5: Yeah, that's, look, that should be something that, that, like, it should not take too long. Um, whether it does or not will be something else. But again, it'll be up to the, the farmer to request that. If Like, if he gets a quote over the phone and he doesn't request a uh, written confirmation of that, then that's, that's mm. on
4: but him. But it must be awfully frustrating to turn up at the gate, having loaded up your cattle and gone to all the trouble of taking them there, to find that you're not getting the price you were offered. That must be indeed very frustrating for farmers and you can sympathise with them with that. Oh, totally. Yeah,
5: totally. But it does work the other way as well, uh, more than that. If I say if I if I say I'm going to bring in my cattle on Thursday, I have to commit to that. If I if I'm going to bring them in, then then that farmer
4: has to. Because commit indeed the to the, the, in. the processing plant will have been geared up ready ready to go, and you have to be there to to to, to deliver. Moving on then to what you mentioned there with Board, Board B. I know Board B has been um, asked to submit an application to get extra EU funding for suckler beef promotion, particularly in the EU. Is that one of the issues on the table for tonight?
5: Yeah, that's that's kind of an ongoing role and process in a way. We've reported on that in the Farmers Journal previously. Um it's to it's to market basically Irish grass fed suckler beef as what it is, which is a high quality product, um high quality beef um across EU markets. Um there's we're expecting an update on that this week as to how that is going. Um, but I think this, the application is still being looked at, shall we say, at, at EU level. Um, but that would be very beneficial to, to Irish suckler beef. Um, obviously, for if, that, if that was the case, um, it would be were successful. Farmers would be expecting some of that uh, money to be passed back along the line to them if they're marketing their product, uh, their cattle basically, that they've held for however long, two years up to in some cases, and... Um, and put the time and money into into rearing, then cattle uh, farmers will want uh, money to be passed back for for that effort that they've put in.
4: Yeah, and obviously the, the whole purpose there is to expand markets for, for Irish producers uh, into the EU and, and further afield. Indeed, I know Bia are doing great work in that area, even, uh, in, you know, into the, the Far East and places like that. They really are working at opening up those markets. But there's another element to the meetings as well, that um, the sort of uh, retailing side of it, that they, that retailers, representatives should also be represented at these meetings. Did you hear of any, will that emerge this evening?
5: Um, it, yeah, so if you're if you're reminding what you're saying there, um, look the the farm organisations, especially the beef club movement, have called for the retailers to have a seat around the table. Um, look, that hasn't happened. Um, it's unclear as to whether they will appear at the table today. I would personally say that they won't and that they'll keep out of it. Um, but look, it remains to be seen. And farmers, they they do have a gripe with um, with the price of beef on on shelves in supermarkets, obviously, and um, it's per kg is way higher than what they are getting first.
4: All right, Amy Ford of the Irish Farmers Journal, thank you indeed for joining us this morning and no doubt we'll be hearing from you again as those meetings uh, with the beef producers and processors um, continue. So, moving on an e-learning training programme for HSE staff has just been launched, focusing on LGBT awareness and inclusion The new course is available to all HSE staff, the content designed in consultation with an LGBT working group, which included groups such as Belong to Gay Health Network, Link Gay Project Ireland, NUI Galway and so on. So clearly a lot of thought has gone into this and here to tell us now how it's going to work is Paula Fagan, the CEO of LGBT Ireland. You're very welcome, Paula. Good morning. Thank you, Orla. Thank you. How significant is this programme, Paula?
6: Well, it's very significant, Orla. It's the first time um, something like this has been developed in Ireland. So it's the HSE has over 100,000 staff. Um, so they didn't have anything on their online system to, up to date. Um, so we're delighted really to have launched this, this last week.
4: And how does it work in practice? So do staff in the HSE uh, voluntarily opt in to going online and taking part in this programme? Or is, it, is there some element of, of uh, a necessary training to it? Yeah, so
6: at the moment it's, it's voluntarily staff log on and, and we're encouraging people to select the programme we are we are delighted that it will we are hoping it will become part of all new staff's induction so people will be asked it'll be part of their induction plan to t- to take this module and um, i suppose we are encouraging people we i suppose we see a lot of demand for training a lot of um health and social care professionals come to us looking for training so we do feel there is a demand Um i think with all of the advancements and rights and the marriage equality referendum and so on i think people are aware the more aware that LGBT people are out there and I suppose that people want to be inclusive in terms of their practice and in terms of their workplaces. So I think the demand is quite high, um, and this module is really a very it's a basic level module but it's it's quick, it's forty five minutes. We feel there's a lot in it. People can take away a lot of very simple but worthwhile things that they can put into the workplaces that will make them more inclusive.
4: On that subject, Paula, I think you're right when you say that there's a great will and a great um, willingness from an awful lot of people to be more aware of inclusion and diversity nowadays because we hear so much about it. But I think sometimes we don't quite know what to do. There's an old Irish saying, whatever you say, say nothing. So sometimes we (laughs) say nothing. So when you talk about simple steps, give me an example of what are the key simple steps any of us can do in the workplace to be more aware?
7: Yeah, so I suppose that's that's the key
6: message in this module. It's it's very simple things. Um, I suppose one of the things we know from research is that LGBT, so lesbian, gay, bi and trans people are more reluctant to go to their healthcare provider. So we leave it very late. I suppose we have um, later diagnosis and so on because people are reluctant to go. And the reason why a lot of LGBT people are reluctant to go is because they feel maybe their healthcare provider doesn't understand their specific healthcare needs, or they feel they won't be they might be negative towards them or they would they will have negative attitudes. So what we are suggesting to healthcare professionals to do is to make their environments, make their forms, their waiting rooms um clinics inclusive. so put up posters that represent same sex families, for example, or in their forms maybe change some of the language from um for example, asking somebody if they have if they're spouse you know, they might say husband or wife or whatever. Now I know we're marriage quality now, but it's that they don't use gendered language.
4: Um Or so could they do something as simple as, you know, a poster in the waiting room saying, We welcome everybody here. It doesn't matter exactly. who you are <laughs> you're <laughs> <Exactly>. welcome. <laughs> exactly. Kate Me in the old Irish sense, yeah.
7: Exactly. So it's really
6: just looking at the environment, thinking about your practice and saying, Are
8: are we inclusive?
6: of everyone and I suppose we in the module we set out like the I suppose statistically there's almost almost one in every 10 person into your workplace will be LGBT and I suppose people underestimate that so for if you see 100 people in a week then 10 of them probably are LGBT now they may may not have told you but does your clinic or whatever are, are you catering for that are you thinking about that so that's really what the module encourages people to do and really, and then it sets out in more detail um, just ways of doing that. And then there's lots of resources and things that they can take on. Does off. it
4: touch on the whole area of unconscious bias? Because, again, I think, you know, many of us are well-intentioned, but we still get it wrong. And unconscious bias training is something that we need to really, um, we need to become aware of, don't we?
6: Exactly. And I think it's in us all. You know, we. I mean, I would have it too. And, and I think it's about what this module does and other modules like it is it makes you stop and think and think about the way you communicate and just about things that you simply don't see because it is the majority culture, you're you're catering to the majority population, if you like. So yeah, it just makes people stop and think. And I think what it does is, I suppose inclusive practice is inclusive of everybody. So it makes the environment more open and welcoming for all, if you like. And I think it gives people, as you said, people often say to us, we don't know what to say. They have great intentions but they don't know maybe the language to use or how to go about it. And this really helps us do that.
4: Well, obviously, as you said, 100,000 employees in the HSE, it's a very good place to start because that is such a big demographic there. And maybe that'll yeah. filter out into other organisations as well. Is there, are there plans to roll it out or to offer it to other organisations, government departments or even uh, commercial organisations?
6: Absolutely, Orla, yes. Yeah. So we hope now this will be the start of a number of programmes. So that we, we are hopeful that the public sector, the broader public sector, will now develop one, I suppose that will meet the needs of say Garda and um, other public sector workers, so that's what we're hoping to develop that in the coming months and we, I suppose we've a lot of the work done now around the kind of key learning messages and, and Key learning issues that people need. So, and you yes, will, I presume, will.
4: be able to record how many of the hundred thousand HSE staff actually took up the option to engage with this exactly. and to take part in it. I presume that you you will get that data as well to to help with the program.
6: We will, and we hope to run a conference then early next year just to kind of report back on that and to to, to bring in people who've done the module and what their key learning is. So that's yes, yeah. so we're hoping this is just the start. of lots of good things to come.
4: All right. Well, uh, go, uh, good luck with that. Uh, Paula Fagan, CEO of LGBT Ireland, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Still to come on the programme, the investigation into the insurance industry and confusion around eligibility for places on school buses. We'll have that and lots more coming up on the programme. You know, your comments are always welcome. We love to hear them. Please call us on 1850 or you can text us on 086 1800 658 and of course we're There on all the social media channels as well. We'll take a break. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Moving now to underage drinking. Back in 2011, research from the International Alliance for Responsible Drinking found that as many as 50% of young Irish people aged 15 and 16 had consumed alcohol in the previous month. The good news is that this number is falling. By 2015, the percentage had dropped to 35% and it continues to fall. And joining us now is Jonathan McDade, Senior Executive with the Alcohol Beverage Federation in Ireland. Good morning, Jonathan. Morning. Now, Jonathan, you obviously represent the drinks industry, and your website says that Ireland's alcohol industry is worth over one billion in exports, and it supports ninety-two thousand jobs and contributes two billion to the economy. And obviously, we don't dispute any of that. But equally, I suppose you have a role around the responsible side of drinking, and you would welcome this report, I presume.
1: Oh, absolutely, we would re- uh, we would welcome this. This is certainly a step in the right direction, and the report shows as well, that our Irish teenagers are among the most abstainious uh, teenagers uh, in the European Union, which is a very welcome development. And I think the reasons why that there has been this, there's been an overall decline around Europe, but a significant decline in in Ireland and it's a co- combination of things. It's just that...
4: We seem to have lost uh, Jonathan there, so we'll come back to him in a few minutes if we can get that call up and running in the next few minutes. So coming up next on the programme, we have... What do we have indeed? Indeed, we will later on we will have uh, Paul Bell in, Mayor of Drogheda, Paul Bell, to talk about the FLA. Obviously, we're all um, still gathering up those lovely memories of the FLA and we will discuss that later on in the programme. Paul will be joining us. Um, We also have an item on public liability and that is, we well, we understand how litigious Irish people are and the uh, compo culture that exists and this is impacting very much on insurance premiums. We're going to look into that. We're also going to look at The document on the Yellow Hammer programme, the Yellow Hammer leaked in the UK, that that is the whole UK's contingency plans for a no deal Brexit. We're going to look into that later on and we have uh, Labour Councillor, uh, or Labour Senator uh, Jed Nash in to talk to us about that. So that's all still to come on the programme. Have we got? We have indeed. We're back We're, we're back indeed onto the uh, underage item. Jonathan McDade. Hi sorry for losing you. you there, Jonathan. and delighted to have you back. So you were just saying about how your organisation does try to promote uh, responsible use of alcohol and you're welcoming the fact that uh, it, it seems that young Irish people are not drinking anything like as much as we, we might have thought.
1: Yeah, and I think it's just that they're also more aware of the uh, dangers of alcohol misuse and obviously, um, you know, we've got, uh, there's an organisation called Drink Aware which does a lot of uh, fantastic work in trying to promote uh, responsible drinking and does uh, specifically uh, just try to target teenagers to de- to inform them of the dangers of alcohol misuse but as well as more education being around Ireland also uh, the Irish uh, drinks industry also operates under the, some of the strictest advertising and marketing codes in in the world uh, and Uh, the codes would basically are quite strict in relation to when it comes to any kind of alcohol advertising, for instance. It's, uh, you know, anyone who's depicted in an alcohol ad in Ireland can't be shown to be, you know, uh, doing well in their personal or professional life because they consume a particular product. And certainly all the actors and models in all ads featured in Ireland cannot feature anyone under the age of twenty. And, and maybe
4: some of that is having some impact when we are seeing the reduction in, in the numbers of young people starting to use alcohol. But at the same time, does your industry put its money where its mouth is, so to speak? Do you fund these Drink Aware programmes? Do you actively put some of the resources back into this?
1: Yeah, Drink Aware is, uh, is completely funded by the industry. Now, it's not run by the industry. It is independently run with its own Medical experts and uh, statisticians and education experts uh, that are part of the organisation, but it is entirely funded uh, through the industry. And there'd be similar other programmes that would uh, that would be out there in in other parts of Europe, in the UK and Scandinavia. And uh, the report uh, that was uh, that you highlighted does state that the more kind of cross cooperation that there is between. Uh, institutes of the state and the industry, the better the success is. Now, obviously, we would like to engage a little bit more with uh, with the the powers that be in government in order to reduce alcohol uh, consumption amongst teenagers, because we feel that by working together. Uh, it's a better and more effective way of... Uh, of Do you
4: also try to influence pricing? Because obviously um, the reduction in the price of alcohol has contributed enormously to uh, the abuse of it because now it's just available so cheaply in some places. Do you try to influence that or can you?
1: We can't because uh, that's actually up to the, uh, the retailer or the hospitality outlet because they would effectively... Uh, be responsible for pricing. So our organisation would uh, just represent the distributors and the producers, the brewers and distillers. Now, in saying that, I mean, I know there's quite a lot of debate, obviously, in relation to pricing, but Ireland still, according to Eurostat, has the most expensive alcohol in Europe. And we also pay some of the highest, highest taxes in Europe. We pay the second highest amount for excise on beer, the highest for wine by a considerable amount, and uh, the third highest for spirits and for cider. So um, Irish consumers do do get hit by quite a lot of, uh, certainly the high taxes, um, much more so compared to their counterparts in the rest of Europe.
4: Indeed. And are there any other funds that you contribute to in the sense that when there has been uh, harmful effects of alcohol and, you know, are there other funds that you, as I said, put your money where your mouth is to try and support this?
1: Well, there's other programs that are available that uh, would be co-funded by the industry and also the hospitality and retail sector. I mean, there's uh, a lot of the hospitality and retail sector are involved in responsible serving of alcohol programs, and this is basically to ensure that um, uh, that people that no one under age is buying alcohol in a particular premises, and uh, in the hospitality sector that you know people who are people uh, that bar staff are adequately trained to make sure that. Say people who are intoxicated are not served. Uh, are not served alcohol and, had the, and those things. Have to be managed in a, in, a, in, a, in a proper way, so those would be a couple of other programs that the industry would be uh, involved in, along with some other sectors in the alcohol se- uh, in the alcohol industry uh,
4: and then on the education side, is there are, are there education programs again to make families more aware of the use of, of alcohol because again there's all sorts of stats showing that um, if families abuse alcohol well that 's where the children see it as such.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what the report says, that a lot of the influence can be from that. But again, I would point back to Drink Aware, which has quite a lot of comprehensive uh, programs in relation to uh, informing people about alcohol misuse. They've had programs that have been involved at a community level from uh, having kiosks in pharmacies to uh, advertising campaigns to uh, campaigns coming up to music festivals to inform people about the dangers of alcohol misuse.
4: All right, Jonathan McDade, a senior executive with the Alcohol Beverage Federation of Ireland. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next on the programme, the investigation into the insurance industry. We'll take a break. Michael
1: Michael Reid Reid on LMFM.
4: Now we all know how litigious Irish people are and the so-called compo culture that exists where every little fall or bang is someone else's fault and someone has to pay for it. And no, we won't mention the swings here today. But the spin-off effect from personal injury claims of volume is that insurance premiums are affected right across the board and businesses find that the cost of their public liability insurance in particular has gone off the scale. The Minister for Business, Enterprise and Innovation Heather Humphreys has requested that the Consumer and Competition Protection Commission, that's the CCPC, are to conduct a study to see how pricing is working in public liability insurance um, around protective competition within the market and generally in a quest for greater transparency. And joining us now to discuss this is Neil Macdonald, Chief Executive of Isme. Good morning, Neil. Good morning Orla. Now one of your members in particular uh, has been infected uh, a victim of significant overcharging by uh, insurance or brokers or whatever. Can you explain that to me please?
2: Well, this was a case that arose a number of years ago. I'm obviously not going to name any of the Absolutely. although it, ha- it has been uh, reported in the media but um, what had occurred here was that uh, our member company was advised Uh, that for their renewal of insurance, there would only be a single uh, insurer available um, and that their insurance was going to go up by a significant five-figure sum. Um, But they were also given a tip-off that if they went to a different broker, they could renew their insurance for the same amount as the previous year. Now, um, our, our member didn't actually go to the Garda. There was that the, we understand that there was a whistleblower went to the Garda. So that uh, issue is now under investigation um, by the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau. Um, but for that reason, we are we're delighted to see that Minister Humphreys is has asked the CCPC uh, to investigate beyond just motor insurance, because, of course, this wasn't in private motor insurance. This so the here.
4: implication here obviously is, Neil, and you represent uh, businesses uh, small and medium sized businesses. But the implication is that there's a cartel operating within the insurance industry and that they're colluding to actually uh, put the prices higher for the individual businesses.
2: Uh, th- th- uh, Ed, whether, whether a cartel or collusive activity or also called market carve-up, so people agreeing to divert one line of business into one underwriter, another line of business, you know, you know say children's play into one insurer and hospitality such as pubs or hotels into another one we actually don't know but um our our concern is and and this is why there's actually a fear factor among a lot of our members even when cases like this come up they do not want to name the insurers they don't want to name the brokers because in many cases there is only one broker or, or sorry one uh, insurance company left so they're actually afraid um, that if things get any worse, they won't have anyone to underwrite their business for the following year. Why that,
4: have that's... the international underwriters uh, withdrawn from the Irish market?
2: Well, I mean, this <laughs> This is the point that we're making back to the Minister. We know that there, or we genuinely suspect, that while there is a problem with insurance companies and, and some of the large brokers, a minority, I'm glad to say, uh it's not the only problem with insurance in this market so the people who are saying that uh insurance companies are enjoying super normal profits well as you know orla there is no business sector that enjoys super uh, super normal profits where there where competition doesn't wipe those out very quickly so there's something very strange going on here if there are enormous levels of profit being earned and underwriters are leaving the business. So what we've said very clearly, very explicitly, very loudly to Minister Humphreys and to Minister Charlie Flanagan as well is that while there may be problems with the insurance companies, we know, and Justice Nicholas Kearns has told us, they're not the only problem, uh, and we have lots of other problems that need to be tackled. And our concern is that the... Only spotlight being shone here is on the insurance companies, and all the other stuff is being ignored.
4: Now I mentioned at the start of the program the the Irish compo culture, and obviously that's only one element of why insurance costs are so high. But obviously it's one that has to be tackled because there seems to be again a sort of a collusion between um, the the legal profession and people, you know, being told, "Oh, sure, look, we 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 we'll get you some money from that particular accident," and then, as you say, that puts the, the the public liability effect for for businesses, any kind of businesses, goes up. So the whole thing, and then as you say. We have the, the 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 scenario where we have uh, insurance companies, perhaps, and we're not suggesting any particular one is, but perhaps there's collusion. But the whole thing has created a mess, really, and this is what hopefully this report will or, or this investigation might start to unravel. Are you hopeful well, that it might um, start to unravel?
2: Well, well, you see, we actually know the 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 issues already. I mean. The, the one thing that, uh, you know, we can't say hasn't happened over the last couple of years, we've set up commissions and studies and committees and reports. We actually know what the problem is and Nicholas Kern's last, summer not not summer 2019 summer 2018 said the key driver of this was quantum we pay out more for really minor injuries yes. and by we refer to them as paracetamol injuries the sort of injuries that are cured by two paracetamol and a couple of episodes of uh, of your favorite box set so these are not even recognized or acknowledged as, as diagnosable conditions in other jurisdictions, and we pay out fifteen or twenty thousand euro for them here. so there is an absolute um, carrot effect here where people are drawn into this sort of thing. By very large amounts of money payable for very little wrong with you, and, and, that and this area seems is to have been, being ignored at the moment. But, and this, you know,
4: this seems to have been ongoing for many years, because I seem years, to remember twenty years, years, okay. years ago having this exact same conversation around why are such large large sums paid for such small injuries here in Ireland? We seem to be the only country that does it.
2: <laughs> Believe it or not, or you say twenty years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously working this issue now for close on five years. The Barrington report back, I think in 1973 was looking at the effects in the workplace. This was work-related uh, health and safety issues. And it said that the uh, the system of litigation for injuries actually led to people you know, staying out of work for excessive periods who didn't need to be out of work. There's nothing wrong with them. And they were just pretending to be ill in order to generate damages claims. So this has been going on for decades. And we do not appear to have the political will to tackle it because we do not appear to have the political will to tackle some of the people who are making hundreds of millions of euro from it.
4: And indeed, not only the claims for minor injuries, but then there's the completely fraudulent claims. And I mean, anecdotally, we all know of somebody who is rear-ended or whatever, and the insurance broker casually mentions on the phone it's the third or fourth time that person's name has turned up. Is there any register of people making these claims?
2: The insurance companies have a, such a register. Uh, the, the issue with that at the moment is that, the, that that's called Insurance Link and it's run by Insurance Ireland. It's access to that database that is being investigated by the European Commission uh, as part of their antitrust investigation. We're saying that uh, there should be a, a um, such a database funded uh, by not funded by the public, because there's loads of money for insurers to pay for this, Uh, but it should be run by either the central bank or by uh, PIAB. Um, Yes, the Department of Finance has come up with loads of reasons why they can't do it. And quite frankly, to us, those reasons don't stack up. They've cited privacy and cost and uh, all, all these sorts of things. Relative to the uh, difficulties that businesses in this country are having getting insurance for commercial motor insurance, for public liability and for employee liability. Uh, the difficulties in setting up this uh, such a database are minuscule in comparison. We neither we we don't understand and we don't accept the reasoning used by the Department of Finance and the Department of Justice in refusing to set up a claim by claim database.
4: Now you also have um, mentioned to the Minister or you will be in your submission um, that you're calling for reform of the Defamation Act and indeed a look at the Perjury Act. What's your concerns around those? Uh,
2: one thing that people don't realise, and I, I appreciate all the people in, in the media tend to view defamation as, as in particular a particular a cause of action that is unique to them. Um, defamation is the fastest rising tort in the Irish uh, court system at the moment, and the vast majority of it has nothing to do with the media. It has everything to do with... Um, uh, retail and hospitality. So people have been asked to, you know, open a shopping bag after an alarm goes off on the way out of the shop. That's that's that uh, is, is a cause of action. Typically, in the five to ten thousand euro region, we have one member company who's getting eight or nine defamation claims per year. Uh, when it's conducting security checks at its shop doors. It is absolutely unsustainable. It is bonkers. It has been... um, The uh, European uh, Court of Human Rights has said that our uh, defamation legislation is not defensible on human rights grounds. We need to get rid of it, uh, but there doesn't seem to be any political will to tackle the defamation. So
4: a simple case where uh, a store security person asks somebody, can they look on their bag exiting a store? That's now a case for defamation?
2: Yep. And it's typically in the five to 10,000 euro range. And if it goes to court, it's in the fifteen to 20,000 euro range. And how and
4: then is the security person, um, I suppose, expected to conduct? Is its it... Is it still inside the store or is it only applicable if it's outside the store or there, is there no parameters on this whatsoever?
2: Well, well we would love the courts to tell us how it is, you, you know, funnily enough, the article of the Constitution that allows you to sue on that basis uh, is the same one. You know, your, your right to your good name and your property rights are all rolled up in the same article. We would actually love either the Minister or the, or the Chief Justice to tell us how it is possible to safeguard a person's property in in a shop um, and still deter uh, shoplifters at the same time. Nobody's told us and it seems utterly unreasonable. We don't know of any other jurisdiction in the world where you can a store owner uh, who has just asked you to open a bag and check if you have a receipt for something it seems absurd but yet again it's it's another area of law where it seems our court system bends over backwards to facilitate payouts to plaintiffs and lawyers and it actually doesn't vindicate the property rights of people who own shops or pubs or hotels
4: And then when you mentioned the Perjury Act give me an example of how that, that works in the current uh, system and indeed all of this contributing to the higher cost of your premiums and mine? Well,
2: um, the, first of all, we believe it or not, we don't have a statutory offence of perjury uh, in this country. We, we never have. It's a common law offence. But because it's a common law offence, it's extremely difficult to prosecute the offence. Um, the issue for us is that every claim for personal injuries is made under what's called uh, an affidavit of verification. So someone swears, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in in front of a solicitor that you know. I I fell on your premises and I hurt my ankle. And they make a sworn statement to that effect. Uh, the problem is that we know that very significant amounts and, and Orly you did allude uh, to this at the beginning about fraudulent claims. The, the, the much bigger issue isn't actually fraud, fraud in the commonly understood sense of the word, it's exaggeration. Now, to exaggerate a claim, in other words, to say that there are things wrong with you that aren't actually wrong with you, that is still a fraud. It's obviously not as bad as the fraud that says you were involved in an accident that didn't occur, or you say that you were involved in an accident where you weren't, but the accident did occur. They're all different types of fraud. But The the central issue for us is that pursuing people who swear these false affidavits, they are never pursued afterwards. So we want a functioning... Uh, perjury act to be brought in very quickly. I'm delighted oh to right. say that uh, Senator Porrick O'Kajic has got it in a private member's bill in the Senate Good. into the doll now, so we're, we're, we're hopeful that we'll get it in within the term. Alright,
4: Neil Macdonald, time. we're coming up on our news break, but thank you very much. You've made that very, very interesting. Uh, a subject like insurance, you make it very interesting. You're very knowledgeable Thanks indeed, and thank you so much for joining us today. That's the Chief Executive is Ismay, Neil Macdonald on the rising insurance prices. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael
1: Reid on LMFM.
4: Now, still to come on the programme, students skipping lectures to earn money to live. We'll have more on that later. But first, some comments from Marie Kearns, your favourite producer. What have you got for us today, Marie?
9: Thanks for the compliment, Orla. Have you got me there?
4: No, I haven't. Wait let's see now where you are. You're on the black mic. I have found you. I'm there on you the go, black black mic. You're on the that's, black that's mic. There right. you go.
9: I'm confusing you today, see, I'm Indeed, normally on the green you're mic. In the yeah. That's yeah. It. Um a good few comments coming in already this morning, Orla. Um we had Seamus in touch, and he was in touch just ahead of our discussion uh Brexit related this morning and uh that uh, report that has emerged from across the water. And Seamus is just making the point that all along people were saying that there wouldn't be a hard Brexit and it wasn't going to happen and now his worst fears he feels are going to be realised and he says that that's what uh, the UK is predicting and you can see that uh, by the report and what mayhem is going to follow as a result of that. Well, there was a
4: lot of doom and gloom and drama indeed in the in the papers over the weekend regarding it. But there was also voices of reason as well. I think one of the uh, commentators, Michael Gove, was saying, look, this is planning. It's planning. It's not necessarily fact, but we will we, we'll discuss that later on. Yes. Indeed.
9: And uh, we also had a phone call from Lorraine who says in relation to your discussion with, um, Jonathan McDay there regarding Andre's drinking beyond the decline. And Lorraine is saying, I'm surprised to hear that. Uh, You wouldn't think it, judging by the antics on the streets around Ireland most weekends. Everything in this country revolves around drink. Another listener says drinking has been replaced by drugs. It's a huge issue, Orla. We've seen a number of tragic deaths due to drugs. Uh, You just heard the family... Uh, of that young man Jack Denny speak out about it over the weekend and you have to admire the bravery in doing that and hopefully it will turn young people off drugs and how dangerous it can be ultimately
4: leading to your death. It's a probably a very very valid point and obviously we have to welcome the decline in the drinking numbers but you're so right it's a, it's another day's work to look into the the, the drug use.
9: Uh, Pat and Dra had a phoned in, and Pat contacted us in relation to the fla and just tying in with drinking, Pat says that he felt it was one big booze up, enjoyed the activities during the day, and says there was a lot of good points. He wanted to commend you know the great cleaning job he specifically mentioned by the cancer workers and the fantastic musicians, but just felt there was too much drinking. Uh, Sinead phoned in and Sinead says that uh, I I hear you're going to be talking about the FLA I just want to say that my five year old having been to the FLA during the week uh, wants to learn Irish dancing and wants to play an instrument so hopefully that will be the legacy of the FLA
4: Well obviously we're we're, we're going to talk more about that and stay stay where you are Marie to join us in this one we're joined now of course by Dada Mayor Paul Bell you're you're very welcome Um, what what a weekend it has been and uh, what a what a journey it's been I suppose it's fair to say yeah. I think that very first meeting in the D Hotel I was there myself at it yes. when we had this notion of bringing a flat to draw it. did we ever think it would actually happen?
3: Well when you look at the people who got involved like Lolo Robinson and Joan Martin of, of Loud County Council it uh, was always understood that this campaign would deliver the flower uh, I know there were always like any campaign there were setbacks there were doubts and so forth uh, but uh, Flacco Nahairn uh, and their leadership nationally obviously had very good confidence that Drogheda would deliver because of the people behind it, not just the council but also the voluntary committee that was walking behind it. So uh, for as as mayor, and I've been mayor now on four occasions, I would have come through this uh, it was various, um, you know, various communications about what was ongoing and I was confident it was going to be delivered. Uh, and in fact, so confident was I that I do probably... Uh, look at the situation going forward and that I wouldn't be surprised in the the years to come in the years to come uh, that that group would not say okay we've done it Let's see, can we now attract the fly corner here and back to Drahada?
4: Well, I'm going to uh, preach some sacrilege now, Paul, if that's okay. Go and, ahead. And that is that obviously it was absolutely amazing, but it's not just Drahada, it was the whole of the North East. And I think the success of the FLA was probably the North East Economic Corridor, as we call it, between Drahada, yeah. Dublin, Drahada, Belfast. We were close. It was very accessible on the East mm-hmm. Coast for an awful lot of people. Yeah. But if it was to come back to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Should it not go to, say, a town like Trim and me that has that beautiful castle as a backdrop? Just to benefit from... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't
3: change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at
4: UH1.com.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
3: Well, Drogheda put a a, a bid in, uh, and obviously our sisters' towns around the region can also put bids in for the flag, if they feel that they can actually manage that kind of event. Uh, You're correct to say that it's been a success for the North East, and in fairness, in in Drogheda, we've seen that last year and this year, Uh, it's also been a success for Ireland. Uh, the amount of foreign visitors in, in this town uh, who come here for the very first time, having heard of what was ongoing uh, of last year. Uh, it was actually one example on the first day of, of of the flower, the first official day, not the warm-up days, uh, I had walked Lawrence Street uh, and every single individual I met on that street was from a country in South America. Chile, Argentina, Peru, uh, Colombia. So, it's far and wide. Of course, we all know now that Kolturi Irn also have branches globally now and of course lots of those people came to, to our town and lots of people in, from around the country came here who had never been in Drogheda but you're correct the northeast welcomed the people uh, from all over the world in here uh, and we've had a great experience, a great interaction too with our friends and colleagues in Mead and in, in, uh, obviously in Low County Council, uh, Monaghan, Cavan Westmead of course who are going to obviously uh, stage the event next year.
4: You mentioned the international visitors. I had Australians couch surfing in my house for it and they never saw anything like it. They thought it was a phenomenon. There's been great um, reports about how well the Drahada flower was done. Mm. I know um, Laros Muruku, the Director-General of Colt, has said in ORT the other night that Drahada had broken all records regarding numbers. Now, that was disputed by those on Twitter who know it all, as Mm. we know. Mm -hmm. But he did say it was one of the... It is going Mm. to go down as one of the best ones. That must be very... um, um, must be very gratifying for you and all the others. Absolutely. Who so work I mean, there.
3: as for citizen, uh, it's, it's not just gratifying for, for, for the mayor. It's an expression of what the citizens of the town, of the surrounding region, put into the flower. Because you can run any event you want, but if you do not have the support of your citizens, volunteers, uh, also citizens basically being kind and giving hospitality just like yourself to to visitors who come here if you're not in that if that buzz is not there if that ingredient is not there then the, the, the festival itself which is a cultural festival it just does not get off the ground so the, I believe that the vital thing was the, the the citizens and also the volunteers that made themselves available we also had volunteers who came from abroad to actually sign up to, to work with, with the 2,000 uh, citizens who became involved the other thing too, by the way, Ola, and I'd like to say this because some residents would say, I had a very challenging flower because some residents, obviously in lo- local areas, especially close to proximity to some of the events, did put up with the normal issue about car parking, having difficulties like that.
4: Noise levels, all However,
3: however they walked with it and they said we're going to walk with this and the council did everything they could to facilitate sometimes successful, sometimes not so successful but again it was understood that it, we would walk through that uh, while the flower was ongoing um, the other thing i just like to mention because there's so many people involved I did mention uh, Joan Martin and Lola Robinson were key leaders in this but uh, the volunteers and I'd just like to give a shout out if I could there was also volunteers in the council there were council staff who volunteered outside their normal walking hours free of charge to give support services both uh, our, our back office staff and the small group led by Paddy Donnelly and Frank Pentany and obviously the outdoor staff 4am every morning Tragical. the town sanitised uh, the, all the rubbish cleared up as best as possible mm. and also responding to other people who needed, needed assistance so you know that. Was really worked hard, you know. You don't have infinite resources. Again, supported by people or volunteers, both in groups and individuals, supporting that. And of course, the business community really did come out and help uh, gratefully as well.
4: That's that's wonderful. It's so all the positive side, but obviously, um, Marie, the the negative side. People criticising the the use of alcohol. Remind us what that comment was there about use of alcohol and yes,
9: overuse. well, but who phoned in, and and he, and I have to say, he wasn't just a negative naysayer. He mm. was pointing and at the good points, he just felt that uh, it was a drink fest come evening time. Enjoyed it during the day, but felt that there was too much drinking. That was his thoughts on it.
4: Do you, do you think there was too much drinking? Mayor Bell, do you think? Do well, you Mayor Bell
3: it? certainly didn't uh, manage to get <laughs> enough time to do any drinking, but I will say this, uh, I don't know how that's judged. This is a, a festival. Like, we we see people going to the all Island yesterday, I'm sure they had a few drinks and some people say in Tipperary and Kilkenny this morning we had a few drinks too many uh, you go to race uh, racing festivals you know it, 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 people are having they're socialising it's hospitality I do understand there is a concern always when you have drinking in public that maybe when you've long spells and the the rules are relaxed because the bylaws had to be changed yes you can see things that you're not particularly happy about in the main I think most people were, were were fairly wise about what they were doing. I know Garashi and Connor played their role in ensuring that people understood that there were certain rules and in, and in, in behaviour. It, drinking is one thing; it's behaviour thereafter, uh, is what obviously concerning And I think me. as
4: well, people have to use the clown. I mean, if you are there with the family, yeah. you are there till eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. Yeah. You know, it's time to go home at that point yes. and leave it to the young people who uh, will party.
3: And they will, par- and they had a great party, obviously. And then there were many events that were on. Uh, of course, well, there was limited alcohol involved. I mean, I attended many concerts uh, run by local people, like Michael Houlihan. and then you have the you had the the Zoe Connery con- uh, concert on here down the road in the Dome. You know, those uh, managed events and so forth. But yeah, again, uh, festivals do encourage people to consume alcohol, and uh, and it's a, it's a part of Irish life. Um, I noticed as
4: well uh, in commentary uh, a lot of um, compliments to the Garda. In the whole tone of the yeah. policing, that yeah. it was so present, it was visible, yeah. but so relaxed. They really so, yeah. got it right. The, in pli- to the
3: policing of the town was appropriate. You know, yeah. when, a, when an intervention had to be made, it was made. Whether it was, you know, people maybe getting a bit boisterous, a little bit of antisocial behaviour, or indeed trying to control traffic. I mean, we did suffer a slight shockwave on Friday when we had to close off the North Key for construction for the carnival site again Guardy reacted to that as best he could set up point duty and so forth keep the the, the traffic flow moving so they responded to all that uh, yes, Again, and there though, was a lot of concern yeah, beforehand yes, because yeah. of events that had gone yeah. on
9: in the town absolutely. in the last year that you know the police needed to be absolutely yeah. you know A1 and you, you have to say that they did pull out all the stops of course there was that incident this morning mm-hmm. and everybody it was that one blight that, that kind of mm-hmm upset everybody, and that was that arson attack on um, the figure in the Old Abbey. And I think it's it's just unfortunate well, the, that, yeah, that, yeah, did, yeah. that that and did happen. And
4: that's a kind of a Frank the Shano's singer. It's a symbolic mm-hmm. figure that has gone the rounds, I think, Marie, of other flags, yes, hasn't it? Yes, yes, And And, and, to and think d- that we all went down Calada. to get our
9: picture taken there. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah. I mean, you have to, when you talk about our volunteers, the Old Abbey, Remarkable work there by John Bannon and Eugene Branigan mm. to transform the place, and I, I myself brought I have a picture of the old Abbey on my wall, and I did an American visitor staying with me, and he was like, "What's that place?" You know, so mm. I brought him down over the weekend, and fantastic, and saw the figure and had mm-hmm. the pictures. And it is, it is sad today, but what yeah. can you do? You can't be responsible for people's actions, mm-hmm. unfortunately.
3: I just like I have a good, uh, dwell for about two seconds on that issue. First of all, it's extremely disappointing. Mm-hmm. However, it's not the headline of the Flower of drada. And I think the people who are commenting on it should understand, let's not feed into the ego or whatever was going on with the individual or individuals who actually were involved in that. They haven't served the town well, the community well, and I, I, I do hope that the Gardaíshire Corner will be successful in their inve- investigations. Just say, uh, all to all, I remember something, uh, and marie of course, that you would notice. Uh, Flackeall may have officially finished last night uh, as far as I can see, it continued on through the night and it will continue on today unofficially because many of the musicians will stay in the local area and they will perform on the streets and in the public houses around the area. And so I'd like the business community just to tolerate it for another 24 hours. And if any of those people in the business community who have yet to make a contribution to the flower, maybe they'd make some, something available to the flower committee. And
4: tell me, um, Paul Bell, the the long-term impact now we did it we worked hard we yes. brought the flat to dramatic yeah. for two, two years there is a, a momentum there mm-hmm. I heard Joan Martin on radio mm-hmm. um, being a bit cagey saying yes we need to take the yes. energy forward but not committing to what that might look yeah. like have you any ideas what it might look like where are we going to take this for the whole of the Northeast well, region first, well
3: first of all we've demonstrated that there's an appetite for festival activity within our town remember something we'd had a maritime festival running over the last couple of years and then we had obviously with this huge event then that was pushed to the side uh, I do believe there's an appetite for it uh, I do believe that there will be conversations over the next few months and we'll have to budget to make sure that there is some type of festival within the town but I have to say it will be very difficult to match flag Kjoll and the heron it's an international event and uh, I do understand that there's even con- consideration about maybe something of a minor scale like that but there will be some event next year I'll be working with it and promoting it uh, and of course maybe in our lifetime again we would see the flower come back to our town. and hopefully it, it will I do want to say I'll say wish everybody the best in Mullingar I know they'll have a different style maybe of what they want to do with, with, with the flower Keolna Heron they've been their colleagues have been here all week studying what's been well, going on well
4: interestingly the amount of people I heard going around the town saying you know I'm going to go to the flower next year in Mullingar as well so yes. they've obviously now yeah. got the bug and that's yeah. good uh, and, a,
3: and, and, and it is good but it's also yeah. good Marie made one comment there exposing young people yes. to their culture the language and, and young and that, musicians that's yeah. the legacy wanting to learn. and wanting to learn Irish and
4: wanting to learn. A musical instrument, and hopefully, we will see at least a weekend event in Drahada in the Oh, we absolutely,
3: I've no doubt. I'm confident that if, if we can't that.
4: do a full week, that might be a big ask. All right, uh, Mayor Paul Bell, thank you for thank joining you, us girl, today. We'll you, take a break. Michael
1: Reed on LMFM. On LMFM.
4: Now, it was widely reported over the weekend that a document codenamed Yellowhammer was leaked to the media detailing the UK's contingency plans for a no-deal Brexit. The report seemed to indicate that the British government is operating behind the scenes on the basis that a hard border will return. And without over-dramatising the content of the report, which details food and medicine shortages, job losses and so on, it seems that the potential impact of Brexit is seriously ramping up and will continue to do so in the next few weeks. And here to discuss the situation is Labour Party Senator Jed Nash. You're very welcome, Jed. Good morning, Earl. Good morning. So tell me, uh, before the weekend we were talking about the Jeremy Corbyn initiative. Is it dead in the water now, do you think?
10: Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think every scenario needs to be uh, looked at and examined very, very closely. um, To remind listeners what that uh, involved, uh, potentially Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the opposition uh, in the UK will table a motion of no confidence in the newly elected leader of the Tory party who then of course by default became the Prime Minister uh, of Great Britain uh, tabled a motion of no confidence uh, in uh, him and in his government and under what's known as the fixed term Parliament Act what happens then is a rather complex kind of set of um, processes um, constitutionally Um, UK parliaments now have to run five years unless a motion of no confidence is um, introduced uh, and is successfully passed. So he has been dealing with leaders of the Liberal Democrats, the Scottish National, National Party and others over the last few days to try to... Um, examine this process and to understand who might actually support a motion of no confidence in Boris Johnson. What would happen then if Jeremy Corbyn was successful is that he has proposed that he would lead an interim government uh, and under the legislation that's in place, what would happen then is that he would... uh, Essentially, become a caretaker prime minister for a period. The European Union has um, expressed the view that uh, if it was a case that a new government was elected and that there was potentially a new general election um, proposed in the UK, that there could potentially be an extension to Article Fifty. And all of this is designed really to avoid the scenario that uh, we have seen unfolded in the newspapers yesterday of a no deal Brexit causing absolute chaos to the May UK have. and massive now. Your
4: Labour Party leader here in Ireland, Brendan Howland, said you don't have to support. Corbyn to support the proposal. So obviously there's that sense that it's common sense. So can we get people behind it?
10: Well, absolutely. And of course, the difficulty here is that um, and this is just a fact that people obviously have to face, regardless of what political perspective you might come from, even the Labour Party is divided in the UK in terms of its uh, position on uh, the current leader. Um, and that is creating a difficulty. He's a, a Marmite-type figure, uh, if I can describe him as such. Um, some people love him, some people hate him, even some people in uh, his own party can't necessarily agree with him, and that's politics. Um, but uh, what my own colleague, uh, my own party leader, Brandon Helen, is saying essentially is, put the country first, uh, put your difficulties and differences, political differences, with Jeremy Corbyn aside, and in the interests of the country, back this kind of arrangement to prevent a catastrophic no-deal Brexit, which would be extremely damaging for British business and for Irish business indeed, for British and Irish jobs, uh, for security potentially, uh, for food, uh, for energy prices, the energy market, for medicines and so on. We've read yesterday, I think, with some degree of horror, the kind of scenarios that we could be dealing with and potentially will be dealing with in a few short weeks. Uh, in Ireland, for example, we could end up having, we have a single energy market, we could have a massive increase in energy prices pretty much overnight because that single market idea would be gone um, as a result of a no-deal Brexit. Tariffs and so on would be introduced on in all goods and services that we just don't have at the moment in the context of the single market. Uh, massive, shor- ma- massive shortages in terms of things we rely on in terms of imports from the UK food-wise. Um, just to and,
4: touch and on, so on that for a moment, and that is this secret dossier, as they're calling it, the Yellowhammer Report. Although, as I mentioned earlier, Michael Gove played down the doomsday scenario. He said well, this he is... he would do, wouldn't ju- he? He would, yeah. of course. But he was saying, this is just advanced planning its normal business. But it does seem quite dramatic. Um, one of the papers today, I think it was the Daily Mail, has the secret dossier's 14 causes for alarm and it covers the exit day itself, the channel ports, drugs and disease, food and water, financial services, all the things you're mentioning but here in Ireland I mean specifically uh, for example in the north-south cooperation we have water we mm-hmm. have electricity mm-hmm. we have things that I don't mind even getting as far as the border these are very serious infrastructural places Absolutely. how will they be impacted?
10: Well that's it and I mean unfortunately there's been a relative silence and I don't want to make a narrow party political point about this there's been a relative silence for our own government in terms of scenario planning it's almost as if uh, they've got their fingers crossed behind the back and saying everything will be okay it'll be alright on the night um, that's that's
4: a, a good point you're making, and it's not necessarily just political having a go because I understand it's that. Certainly
10: not. I don't think we should in no, the context like of Brexit. We have we
4: done ourselves about. exactly to prepare for a no deal Brexit? In the sense that we've been so focused on getting a, disease, a deal on preserving the backstop, have we done exactly as the Brit- British have seemed to have done, which is prepared? for a no deal?
10: Well, I'm not sure that the the British have, um, to be frank. It seems that they're prepared to torch torch the country uh, in the interests of uh, the kind of narrow nationalism that we're seeing now from the uh, Conservative Party, embodied uh, in the kind of language and tone that's been employed by Boris Johnson uh, and others. Uh, You know, no deal Brexit at any cost at all. And that is extremely worrying. It's almost as if we're hoping uh, that... We won't have a no deal scenario. It's a massive game of chicken now. But there are businesses, jobs, uh, lives, um, economic health, um, social stability at stake. It's that serious. We're not hearing an awful lot from government about what the actual logistical arrangements will be in terms of supporting Irish business that could be really badly affected from from day one, uh, we know of course, that we use the UK as a land bridge for our goods uh, across to uh, continental Europe. Uh, we require I think additional financial support from the European Union. They need to make that very clear what that support will mean. Uh, we could, for example, be looking at a suspension of state aid rules to ensure that Ireland is managed through this process because I remember asking the uh, senior uh, economist in the Central Bank just a few short weeks ago about the real consequences for jobs in the economy and for business in Ireland in the event of a no deal. Brexit like this. And he's talking about 60,000 jobs very, very quickly. That's taken us back to 20... 2009-2010 scenario. That wasn't that long ago and we all remember what this country was like in 2009-2010-2011 and when, when we jobs been were being lost by celebrating the celebrating
4: the fact that we have the lowest unemployment. Well, we've all
10: worked really and you know, I worked particularly worked hard, hard myself hard as it. Minister yes. for Employment over two year period to reach this mm. scenario we're in at the moment where we have technical full employment and where the economy appears to be going extremely well, notwithstanding the lack of confidence around because in the context of of, of Brexit. So we need that additional support from Europe. Europe needs be very clear what the additional support will involve and the government need to be very clear uh, how they will support business, how they will support individual citizens through this potentially catastrophic scenario.
4: Looking at some of the timeline that's coming now, um, the first kind of big date we're looking at next is the 3rd of September when there could potentially be a no confidence vote on uh, in, in Boris Johnson on that day. How likely is that to happen, do you think?
10: Um, probably diminishing by the day, uh, given the lack of support that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is managing to get for this initiative. Having said that, um, I think you know we should continue to breathe life into this and make sure that this is a potential um, al- alternative, because this is a avoiding a no-deal Brexit and people putting their narrow party political interests aside to support um, this kind of proposition that could potentially avoid a no-deal scenario. I know that the Liberal Democrats, for example, are proposing that maybe other experienced people like Ken Clarke yes, or I indeed our own Labour weekend. Party Joe colleague Winston Harriet Harman might, might at, take yeah. over but constitutionally position, the position is that Jeremy Corbyn is whether people like it or not the leader of the opposition and that is the convention and that had that a 40% he mandate form, cetera, absolutely yeah. and that he would be asked to form a government potentially by the Queen
4: Yes, indeed. The next date being looked at is uh, the sixth of September, because that is the date when this legal challenge—that is kind of uh, locking the, the doors yeah. of the house—in order to, to force things through. Again, it's called a pro rogue. I've never yeah. heard that Prorogation before. Of
10: Parliament. I mean, the last time uh, as a as a, as a student of history myself and a history graduate I looked at this a number of years ago I, I recall and I mean it, it was this was really, one the,
4: of these the archaic kind of British formats, civil, yeah. civil
10: war um, where uh, King Charles the, the, the parliament was prorogued was essentially suspended So, we're in those kind of uncharted waters now. Grasping at straws, really, isn't it? Boris Johnson had announced in the context of his his, uh, election campaign to be leader of the Conservative Party that he would consider the suspension of Parliament. So, in other words, Parliament would be suspended, locked down, wouldn't be able to debate anything um, because he was so determined to actually secure a no deal exit from the European Union. We're living in extraordinary times. We never thought we'd be in this scenario. And this has been challenged, this idea has been challenged by quite a number of parliamentarians. And, um, from reading some background material and documentation on this, I, I think that challenge would be successful. I can't see um, Parliament being suspended. Remember, there is actually there isn't support for a no-deal uh, Brexit in the Westminster Parliament. Uh, we know that. Uh, it's a matter now of just bringing the various disparate elements together to try to make sure that the Tory party... Embodied by the Prime Minister, Boris, just can't get away with this. And when
4: you see uh, sort of ancient statutes like that being drawn up, and people looking, you imagine the backroom people scrambling around trying to find something to looking sort of hang all of this on. Constitutional exactly. Constitutional
10: precedent. Remember, in an unwritten constitution. Yes,
4: indeed, <laughs> indeed. And the other date we have coming up is the twenty fourth, twenty sixth of August, the G seven meeting. Is it likely what's what's likely to happen there, or will there be but, any directive coming? You were talking but, earlier about needing more direction yeah, from the EU. But, but
10: Boris, Boris Johnson um, himself. Um, in a very bellicose way, seems to be demanding before he goes to the G7 meeting, um, before he meets with um, with um, the German Chancellor and with Macron in France, that his key demand here is before he even meets that he wants a new deal. Uh, that's not going to happen. Um, the European Union is united behind Ireland, and it's going to backstop for lots of different reasons, primarily, of course, to. Uh, secure the uh, benefits of the Good Friday Agreement and peace and security uh, on this island. So that seems to be his ambition. He goes to the G7 and he demands, uh, knowing that he won't get it, uh, playing to his own narrow audience at home, um, a narrow nationalistic audience that he wants the backstop to be dropped. The backstop won't be dropped. And remember, the backstop was introduced. he, he was
4: made that very clear. He,
10: he was made it very clear. Yep. And remember, this formed a key part of the um, British government's uh, own approach to negotiations. This was negotiated originally by Theresa May. May. This is an insurance policy and the backstop, a lot is made of the backstop. but The backstop is only an insurance policy to allow a transition period to emerge over the next couple of years where a deal can be done that would satisfy the European Union and Britain in terms of managed exit from the European Union in the hope that we would not need that backstop because we would hope that they would remain in the customs union or the single market which would be in everybody's interests.
4: Finally then uh, in the Irish Times this morning there's a very interesting article about the history of the border and why and the significance of it and it says that um, Dublin's colourful Lord Mayor Alfie Byrne uh, in 1935 declared in a rare interview that the border was a festering sore which is a danger to our country and to England. How prescient was he all those years ago. And here we we are. We cannot
10: see that infrastructure um, reintroduced um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, To our cost, we have seen the the, the problems associated with a border in this country. Peace for security. uh, And we all voted um, huge numbers to support the Good Friday Agreement and peace and progress in this island. And we can't jeopardise that
4: indeed. Uh, Senator uh, Jed Nash thank you for joining us today. Thank you. We'll take a break Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM Still to come in the programme the confusion over school bus passes but first more than 50% of third level students are skipping lectures to earn the money they need to, leave, to live according to a report commissioned by the Irish League of Credit Unions. Money worries are ruining their college years many students say as they juggle their time between low paid work and the lectures they do attend with no time for anything else. And joining us now with the details of the report is I see ILCU spokesperson Paul Bailey. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Olaf. This is very sad, isn't it? To think that student days are, are ruined by additional stresses when we know young people face uh, enough mental health issues as it is.
11: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's quite revealing the, the results of the survey. We do know, like any of us that have been students over the years. Yeah, you do struggle a little bit at college, but... This survey seems to suggest that, that you know, a lot of people are struggling, like more than two-thirds, 69% of people saying they're struggling uh, at college, which is impacting on, as you say, their third-level experience. It's impacting on their studies. Um, While well, they should be concentrating on, you know, a- exams and getting, their, getting the exams so they can move on uh, in their working lives after college, um, they're, they're burdened by uh, the extra cost of attending college.
4: One of the the findings of um, the survey, and we'll go into some of the detail now, but one of the things that struck me most was that 58% of those surveyed, and I think it was a survey sample of about 450 interviews, but 58% of them said that the importance of saving for college was not adequately conveyed to them while in secondary school. That's interesting, isn't it? That we really need to let them know this is going to be part of your college experience.
11: It is interesting. And and, and this is one of the reasons that we engage in this type of survey that the, the Irish League of Credit Unions engages in this is it's to fulfil our mandate for financial education. Um, and so <clears throat> what we find is, as you say, 58% said that they're not told enough about it at second level, there's not discussed enough uh, around budgeting, around having a financial plan, um similar percentages will say that, that that third level colleges are not doing enough to explain to them how to work out a financial plan, and this is where credit unions come into their own um or different from other financial institutions in that we do assist um, members and students and and uh, members of the public with uh, financial education uh, around budgeting around having a, a sound financial plan. We have a a very good uh, series of blogs on our website creditunion.ie forward slash news forward slash blog where students can find out uh, how to budget properly, they can find out what to watch out for when they're renting a a place for college for example. The the checklist is a downloadable uh, rental checklist there. So that's that's where that's, as I say, why we do this survey. Did the survey
4: um, reveal any details about how many young people actually have a saving habit as such uh, or, or do they land into third level starting this journey rather than actually having gotten into the habit of saving with their credit union or whatever at a much younger age?
11: Yeah, I mean, so, some people, uh, a, a, a very low percentage would say that they uh, will, will fund the um, their college from their from their fees. Uh, f- sorry, from their savings um, it's just 6%, six 6%, percent I think yeah, percent, yeah very
4: low, yeah, very or very low.
11: low when you compare the uh, from the overall survey. The majority rely on their parents and family to fund their education.
4: There doesn't seem to be an expectation that they should fund their education in any way. You know, years ago, anecdotally, people, fellas went off to building sites in London, came back with their fees to go into second year or third year, or they went off to the States. Whereas now going on the J1 is all about the experience. It's not about actually saving the money for your fees when you come back in September.
11: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very changed world to when, when you and me were at college and going off in J1s, um, where you were expected to come back, as you say, and, and save the money for your next year's studies. Um, it's very different nowadays. They go for the experience. They uh, enjoy the experience, which is important as well. Um, but they're then faced into coming back into the huge cost of attending college, and particularly those uh, young people that are attending college away from home uh, and, and some of the big urban centres are facing... Uh, Increases in rent, for example, this year. Um, So there's a huge cost involved, and it does impact on families. In fact, impacts on parents. Um, I mean, thirty four percent of of those surveys said they expect them or their families to be paying um, to be in debt after college for a number of years until until the amount is paid back.
4: I see here as well that. 42% of students rely on their parents and family to completely fund their third level. That's actually quite high. About 30% rely on the government grant, obviously the Susie grant, and then 13% only rely on paid employment. So there are very few students really who are fully independent. Really, most of them are relying on support from the family.
11: Oh, they are. There's no doubt about that. Um, And then, as you say, one of the worrying statistics from this survey is that, you know, there's a, a huge increase in the, the number of students uh, working full-time. When we look at um, from, uh, back from 2017, we had uh, 22%, um, and 55% now they're saying they're skipping lectures to, 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 to go to work to funds their education. So that defeats the whole purpose, really.
4: And even saying that they're skipping work to go, um, you know, that sounds like they're doing that deliberately. A lot of the time, I think the workplace conditions have changed so much as well that they're getting half shifts and split shifts and they're getting called in at short notice. And if they want to keep that job and the shop says turn in for two hours on Wednesday, they have to. It's It seems to be tough on them. They don't even get a full shift anymore
11: no i mean yeah 14% are working full time but 15% are working those, as you say those ad hoc hours um so it it is it, they have to be available to work uh when the, when the, when the shop or when the, the the employer says we need you today you know is the shift going this evening or the shift going this morning um, and they'll skip that lecture to go and get that money
4: The other thing that comes out of the survey is you know they're not going wild their monthly food bill is averaging at 116 euro that's not a lot No you know their rent is 300 a month 74 and, uh, euro, in utility bills like they're not going mad you know it, they're, they're low costs really when you look at it
11: They are I mean and and travel shown in there as well 88 euro per month which is uh, you know it's, it's quite reasonable for any anyone travelling Um what we found is students living away from home are, are averaging just over a thousand euro per month, uh, thousand and forty seven. The bulk of that being their rent on an average of. 45.
4: And obviously, the bigger cities, Dublin in particular, it's going to be colossal because it's, oh, it's yeah, a huge, we, it's a huge whack of of their we've costs.
11: Heard, we've heard stories where yeah, young people are paying eight hundred euro a month just for a room in a house. Uh, in, 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 in Dublin than to in Cork be and to Galway. college
4: yeah. and I, I think we're also hearing as well that young people who do stay at home because they have to they can't afford to live in Dublin they have long long commutes and that in itself of course is impacting on their education as well of course
11: yeah yeah, yeah. and big, bigger travel costs but at least they have a, they're not paying rent which is something you
4: know. yes indeed yeah no it's not easy on them and uh, I, I suppose that the, the, the key point out of this is the education piece really isn't it
11: it's the education piece uh, go on to creditunion.ie forward slash use forward slash blog where you'll find uh, relevant information you'll also find on that website your local credit union go and talk to your local credit union around financial planning around budgeting they'll help uh, and they may be able to offer a loan there are very competitive loans available around five percent the other thing to, to mention is that a lot of credit unions offer scholarships and bursaries uh, for their members and, and for if, if your parent is a member you may qualify for that uh, scholarship or bursary. So go and check that out as well locally.
4: And maybe we need to teach them to uh, hold on to that communion and confirmation money and, uh, and not be saving it to put it <laughs> away with the education. Absolutely, yeah. So some hope. Paul Bailey of the ILCU, thank you for joining us today. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we've been hearing on the news today the confusion over who qualifies for school bus tickets has emerged again this year. Last year, 103,000 students were bussed to primary and secondary school under the school bus scheme operated by Bus Aaron. This year, so far, only 87,000 students have had their places confirmed, according to media reports, which means that many, many parents across, across the country still don't know if their child will have a bus with only a couple of weeks to go to the start of term. Joining us now is parent Hazel Thompson whose child attends Boyne Community School. Good morning, Hazel. What's the story with your own child?
8: Good morning. Uh, My son is in Boyne Community School, as you said, and he's about to go into second year. And he starts in uh, second school again now for this coming term on Wednesday week. So really we've only seven working days left to try and get this sorted out. So he was on the bus last year. He's very, very happy in the school. The school look after all his needs very, very well. We're so happy with our choice of school. But now we're in an awful predicament because myself and my husband both work and leave the parish here at 25 past seven in the morning. So if I were to bring my child to school to drop him off before I went to work, he'd be outside the school at seven o'clock in the morning, That's three quarters of an hour before it opened. But that... That realistically is where I'm at at the moment. There's 12 kids in the parish without transport to school and it's just very, very worrying.
4: It seems completely unacceptable. And what has changed between your situation last year where all of this worked and, and what has changed this year? Why do you suddenly not qualify?
8: Because there's no room on the bus is the the reason that we're being given by bus Aaron. And we were on a, a concessionary tickets all along. But concessionary tickets came to mean nothing because for 40 years we had concessionary tickets but we were all bused in and out to Trim. We're a feeder school for the schools in Trim and we're in the catchment area for those schools in Trim. But what has happened is in a village down the road a little bit closer to Trim, um, there was just a spike in population. There's more children leaving sixth class and going to Trim on the bus. And our bus served our parish in Minazi and Summerhill. And because there are more children um, down there needing space on the bus, 12 of our children have been booted off. Now, incidentally, there's a couple of people from Manalby still have concessionary tickets because they only needed 12 places, so they booted off a random 12 children. And then there's a couple of people in the parish that are still getting the bus on the concessionary ticket, and it's still going to be stopping at the bus stop across the road from my house, and my son still can't get on it because they won't give him a ticket.
4: That sounds absolutely extraordinary. And just for clarity, um, if you live at least 2 or 3.2 kilometres from your nearest primary school or 4.8 kilometres from a secondary school, you'll automatically get bus transport. But if you're outside that or within that, you get what you've described as a concessionary ticket. So you had, because you were slightly closer, you got a, a concessionary ticket in the past. Is that the case?
8: That's correct, yes. So we're slightly closer. You know, in terms of road distance, kilometres, we're slightly closer to a school called Sculldara in Kilcock in County Kildare. And, you know... That that really never became an issue because we were just talking about this before the children started. We were talking to all the mums and the parents and everything, send their kids to second school and fourth and fifth and sixth, and the bus ticket was never an issue. And we went to all the open evenings, we went to Kilcock and we went to Trim and we looked around the schools and we all made our decision based on our own children's needs. There's nothing wrong with Kilcock secondary school. It's just the choice that we made was to send our children to Trim. My, in my particular case, I sent it in because it's a community school that also has DESH status, so it is far more resources given to it by the government. Kilcock is a voluntary Catholic secondary school, so it's only working on 70% capitation grants compared to the community. It has 100% capitation plus the Desch school uh, grants. And then across, uh, down the road from that in Trim is uh, Skull a Girls School. Now, the government, this government has actually spoken a lot about offering parents choices. They're looking at how to amend admissions policies from schools and actually sending circulars to schools to tell them, instruct them to amend their admissions policies so parents get a choice in what school to send their children to in, in, in keeping with their ethos. And there is no all-girls school in Kilcock, but yet the parents that chose to send their daughters into Skull in and Trim, there's eight, eight girls going into Skull in and Trim, have been told that they don't get uh, qualify for a bus ticket because uh, Skoldara Kilcock is closer. So it's almost like we're being forced into picking Kilcock. Now, I've said before, we don't have any problem with Kilcock. And it's, it's an amazing school and it's great for the children who chose to go there. But our children are choosing to go to Trim and they're already enrolled and they're already attending. And if There's they're there like,
4: and they're settled, it will be just ludicrous to, to move them or even consider moving them. I mean, your yeah, choice has been made, as, as you've
8: said. I mean, in this in this situation, we've got... Um, several of the students involved, the 12 students, are going into exam years. Now, in terms of the new junior, set, the new junior cycle programme, it's actually harder to move children now midstream in a cycle with this new junior cycle because they start their junior cycle um, project work and portfolio work in second year. So if you're to move a child that's now going into third year just for the sake of a bus, then they're going to have an awful lot of uh, difficulty uh, settle into the other school and
4: uh, the It will be it would be completely disruptive right, obviously yeah. we need more needs to be done uh, in terms of what Bus Aaron is offering and we're joined now on the line, you stay where you are there um, Hazel Thompson, a, a parent and we're joined now on the line also by Fianna Fáil councillor Aisling uh, Dempsey Good morning Ashling. Good morning Arla, hi Hazel I'm good thank you, hi. now you sent in a very strongly worded um, press release to us here you obviously are, are feeling the pain of these parents very keenly
7: Yes, absolutely. Um, I was in touch with Hazel um, last week and, and some of the other families there from Wynaldi. I have parents um, in the Rock Road going to school in Dangan. I have parents between Boy and Trim, um, all in the same situation, um, just not able to get these concessionary tickets anymore because um, there was a reform, a value for money reform done in 2011. Um the department and part of that um, was that they reduced um, bus sizes um, on these routes. That's one of the problems. The other problem is our schools, particularly in Trim, are bursting at the seams. We have waiting lists, miles long, very disappointed um, parents, you know, spoke to me out canvassing and since I've been elected um, about how they couldn't get into our schools in Trim and the bus service just hasn't moved along with that we need bigger buses I've been speaking to the bus providers and um, to the schools and trim and they're there they have the drivers they have the buses um, and parents are, are presenting to them as well very upset
4: What is the solution them. to this Ashling? I'm, I'm sure it is not the fault of uh, the, the unfortunate workers in Bus and who have to take all these no. requests and phone calls but, but what is the solution to this what needs to be done for example the form filling in April and here we are a week before the deadline and people still don't even know do they have a place why does it take so long even to notify people let alone actually physically find them a place
7: absolutely you know the deadline is april which is probably a little bit late as well um and they take your 100 euro or 350 if you're a secondary school um child going to, uh looking for a bus place they take that and then they don't let you know until this time of year every year and it's not acceptable you know we nearly every household now is um you know two parents working and you just can't change your work patterns, as Hazel mentioned earlier. You just can't do it at this short notice. The system needs to be much more efficient. Even the fact that they take your money and then refund it, that is such a waste of money um, that could be put into putting on bigger buses and ending the bus contracts. Um, just there's, there's just so much inefficiency in it.
4: Uh, and as you say, the, the, the whole um, ecosystem of getting a family out to work and school in the morning is such a finely balanced act that yeah. anything like this just disrupts it completely. I you Like the pressure people are under to get kids, family, lunches made, uniforms on, out the door and parents trying to get to work. It, it's yeah. really, really uh, unacceptable Maybe. that a week beforehand they don't know. But again, what can be done or, or is there more to be done about this now in the time that's left?
7: I, well, in the time that's left, the department and Busseron will really need to get the finger out and, and amend the contracts. Um, and I think it can be done. They, you know, I hear from other councillors year on year; they they have managed to solve some of these issues. So we just need to keep fighting. All the councillors need to keep, come together, and keep putting pressure on the department. The parents need to. Make sure they're getting their appeals in and talking to them, um, and hopefully common sense will prevail. Like there is no point in telling parents to send, take their children out of one school and send them to a different town or to a different county. You know, as in in Hazel's case. So, Coming
4: back um, to you, Hazel. Um, what's your final thoughts for me this morning? Have you any hope of getting this resolved?
8: I don't know. I mean, the fact that there's so many thousands of children affected across the country, I would, uh, like Ashling suggests, you'd hope the common sense would prevail and a minister will step in. Thomas Byrne TD met us last Thursday evening and he said they've priced it. It's only going to cost £4 million. And you look at the amount of money that went down the drain with Western building systems, and then last week we found out that another school, 17 schools are going to need temporary work and remediation, all because things weren't monitored closely. And we're looking for... You know, just 4 million to get all the children across the country to school. They're already enrolled in schools. I don't see why a child should have a ticket taken off them if they were granted one. If you get one going into first year, you should have it all the way through to sixth year and not have these worries. And I don't know what's going to happen. But, I mean, really, there's 12 12 children involved, eight families here in Manavi. We can't carpool. Logistically, it wouldn't work. A timetable for... It doesn't work anyway because... Out of all of the children and um, the, the eight families concerned, all eight families are working. And we're working different hours in different places, going different directions. A lot of us have younger children, myself included, going to childcare as well. So, so, literally on the 28th of August, I don't know how from the point of.
4: We're losing you there Hazel but we've come to the end of our time in any event Hazel Thompson a parent with her child going to Boyne uh, Community School and also uh, Councillor Ashling Dempsey on that subject of school buses and no doubt there'll be more on that over the next week that's where we have to leave it for today I'm Orla Carmody I was uh, standing in for Michael Reid today he'll be back with you tomorrow my thanks for your company and a particular thanks to the crew here today Marie, Chris and Maggie as always and uh, hopefully if you've a bit of time in your hands you might get into and help with that cleanup of the fly. It's going to be massive. Have a great day. Bye-bye.
0: The Michael Reed Show podcast.
3: Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
5: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,
6: with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com.